Welcome to Bridging the Energy Gap, a podcast that's focused on all issues related to energy access in Sub-Saharan Africa. On the podcast, we'll be inviting experts from the fields of policymaking, science, finance, and economics. Our hope with this podcast is to provide a consensus around what are the issues behind providing energy access in Africa, and what are the potential solutions being discussed. Welcome. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of Bridging the Energy Gap. On this episode, we're joined by Bradley Pokua Mankwa, who's a special aide to the Minister of Energy for the government of Ghana. Bradley has previously been responsible for setting up the St. Andrews Africa Summit, which is the conference based in Scotland that discusses African affairs. Prior to this, Bradley has also set up a social enterprise called Smart Fuel. Smart Fuel aimed to take used cooking oil and put that in generators or other engine types that previously had relied on diesel. On our podcast, we discussed everything from his time at COP27 to the recent initiatives that are occurring in both carbon markets as well as nuclear technology. We discussed the equity of climate change and all the ramifications of that, as well as clean cooking topics. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy this podcast. Welcome to another episode of Bridging the Energy Gap. So welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of Bridging the Energy Gap. We're joined here today by Bradley Pokuamankwa, who is a special aide to the Minister of Energy. He's been in this role since 2021 and has embarked on a landmark policy initiatives that have been very instrumental for reaching um, Ghana's electrification goals. So welcome, Bradley. It's great to have you on the podcast today. Thanks, bro. Um, I'm, it's, it's an honor, honestly. Um, when, when you reached out, I was super excited, especially coming off the back of COP27. So yeah, let's go for it. That's amazing. And Brad, Bradley is really a man of the world. There's almost no weekend I try to reach out to Bradley where he's not traveling or doing something very, very exciting. Not just the world. I also sometimes around my own country, but yeah. <laughs> Wonderful. So I guess let's, you know, start off by the, the usual way we do, where you sort of tell us who you are, uh, how, what your journey to the energy industry has been like. Okay. So yeah, as, as you've mentioned, my name is Bradley, Bradley Pukwa Mankwa. Um, and what I'll do is I'll just take you, you know, through a journey of how I got here, like you're saying. Um, so essentially, my first stint in the sector was back in 2014 when I developed a concept for a waste cooking oil to biodiesel um, franchise to be deployed in Ghana. This would be the country's first scheme of the sort at the time. And it really came to me as the country was going through a rather dire energy crisis at the time with rampant load shedding or what you know some people know as scheduled blackouts for up to 12 hours of each day meaning that most people who could afford it had to rely on diesel generators to power their homes and businesses for extended periods of time, which is, of course, a costly and noisy endeavor, you know, presenting both economic and environmental challenges to Ghanaians. Um, I, I was still an undergraduate at the time studying in Scotland, actually. So I leveraged that to apply for various enterprise challenges um, that I was eligible for as a student. Um, a lot of them were targeting students specifically. So that, that was really helpful. Um, some as far out as in Singapore, Morocco, and even in Nigeria. Um, it was a really exciting time for me because I was winning so many awards, getting grant funding in some cases, and that allowed me to really gain traction for the concept I was developing. But ultimately, 
it would not be worth it if the impact was not being felt on the ground. And so ultimately, after wrestling with the idea for a while, I decided to graduate a year earlier and move back to Ghana to pilot the project. Um, I also managed to convince a few of my mates from university to join me on the endeavor. And we ran the pilot for a few months until we hit a wall as we were getting limited feedstock um, for the generator plants to, to, to convert, right? Um, but nonetheless, it was such an amazing learning curve and it gave me my first taste of the energy industry for which I'll forever be grateful. And now I'm, I've come here full circle working in the policy area of, of energy. So yeah, that's, that's it. That's a great story. And, you know, we always love to hear enterprising uh, narratives about young people going on and taking on big challenges. And as you alluded to, the problem you were trying to fix, clean cooking, which kills about 4 million people a year, roughly, given the pollutants that come from burning firewood, burning charcoal to then make um, food. It's a huge scale problem. And I think it's one of the illustrative examples of what a lack of energy access causes in many of these sub-African, sub-Saharan African countries. And it's it's great that you were bold enough to, to tackle the head on and, and now in a position to to be doing things on a on a national level. So, you know, you mentioned that I first reached out at the sort of end of COP when, you know, there was a lot of rave about this in November. Do you, do you mind talking us through how your experience at COP was and, you know, what were your, some of your key takeaways? Absolutely, Pekun. So... Um, COP27 was actually my second COP after doing COP26 in Glasgow the year before, and I loved it. Uh, we, we've had so many mixed reviews since the event, but let me start off by saying that I will pick a warm Mediterranean seaside resort over a freezing cold Scottish <laughs> industrial city any day. So Sharmel Ship was fantastic. Um, of course, there are a few hiccups, and I mean... You should expect that when you gather so many international delegates anywhere. But overall, the feel was very positive, in my opinion. Uh, Moving beyond the user experience, I found the content of the forum at COP27 to be very apt. Um, It was widely hailed as the African COP. And I mean, that's something that is (laughs) debatable. Of course, it happened on the African continent. But you will, of course, know that I think what made it for me, what made it the African Cup really was the fact that one of the key themes was loss and damage, which generally describes the need for wealthier, more industrialized nations to develop, to deliver on their promises to provide climate funding to climate vulnerable nations who have emitted far less carbon. And I was particularly proud that Ghana held the presidency of the Climate Vulnerable Forum this year, leading the partnership of affected nations seeking climate reparations. But um, when all is said and done, I think the most poignant moment for me at, during COP27 was when I heeded um, Ellie Golding's challenge to go swimming in the coral reefs of Sharm El Sheikh. This experience was one that will be etched in the corners of my memory for the rest of my life. And I'm really glad that I did it. I previously studied the potential threats being faced by coral reefs in bio and geography class back in high school, but um, absolutely nothing could have prepared me for the splendor of seeing the reef structures and the inhabitant array of fish species, colorful fish species. Nice. Uh, it's unfortunate that not everybody can experience the beauty of nature's wonders, you know, firsthand. But I'm convinced that if more people, more people would become climate activists if they did, basically. 
um, in summary, getting people out into nature and showing them the beauty of some of our most treasured life forms that are, you know, endangered is probably a far more effective method of creating awareness than, you know, any lengthy fora and lofty dialogue. Yes, and, and you know, it, it's great that COP, it, it appears at least at, at the face of it, a lot of the talk was hopefully translated into action. Um, as you mentioned, the loss and damage fund was announced, and hopefully that then leads to subsequent things. But even what you're seeing on a on a more uh, global level is people actually seeing the effects of doing things that harm the environment, right? And and I think a lot of people don't necessarily go out of their ways to do these things, but I think once they do, as you rightfully pointed, there's a huge impact. When it when it comes to your role, right, and you're in the Ministry of Energy, you know, thinking of strategically about this issue, right, of how do we get people mobilized and interested and very incentivized to care about climate change. What would you say are the key priorities for for, for your administration in making that happen and, and to making sure that Ghana stays on a net zero pathway? Okay, so um, I happen to be the secretary to our National Energy Transition Committee. And, you know, um, I was a part of, like you, you, you earlier alluded to, the policy that we developed, which is called the National Energy Transition Framework. Um, um, we, we, I think over about, it took us about a year and a half, but we did, you know, we embarked on extensive stakeholder engagement, going around the country, speaking to every possible group of stakeholders you can imagine, from students to truck drivers, to fish smokers, to traditional leaders, to the judiciary, everybody about what they understood by, you know, net zero or energy transition and what, what, what they thought our prospects would be and how they thought we should approach it. Um, but um, back to what we're discussing even more directly, we did some modeling as well. So we modeled various scenarios, including business as usual, which is basically us going along the path that we are at the moment and compared it to like different um, different models where we're using different forms of energy. And we discovered that nuclear power as a base load will be a vital component for us to meet our net zero goals by 2070. Of course, supported by other forms of energy such as gas and renewables. But we realized that without that nuclear, we, we just won't meet net zero by 2070 as we hope to. So that's a key component for us. I want to take us back to COP27 a bit. When when we think about and that's a very fascinating takeaway that nuclear, because nu- nuclear has tended to be quite controversial, depending on which markets you're talking about it. Some people say it's too expensive. Some people say it takes too long to get off the ground. There's no point. In, and a lot of people also have um, he, uh, Hiroshima and other nuclear disasters at the back of their mind as the possible reasons why you wouldn't want to do nuclear. Uh, rewinding back to the COP27 agenda, um, I am. I imagine a lot of things were discussed in different direction, technologies, and what the solutions were. But were there practical steps that were offered for how developing countries like Ghana, like Nigeria, like any other sub-Saharan Africa country that can enable them to leverage international finance that can then pursue things like what you're talking about that are a bit more expensive, a bit more technically challenging to do than just putting solar panels on the floor. Any of those type of solutions discussed? Absolutely. So developing nations are actually quite well poised to benefit greatly from the voluntary carbon markets. Um, Article 6 of the Paris Climate Agreement has provided 
a comprehensive framework under which countries are able to trade carbon credits in a similar manner to other regulated markets like you know commodity markets etc so in practice this means that developed nations will be able to offset their emissions from their heavier industrialized economies by purchasing carbon credits from less industrialized nations like ours and i mean ghana has recently set up a carbon registry actually in anticipation of this which we are very excited about now what this means is that you know we might be able to then afford technology that we otherwise wouldn't wouldn't be able to you know like um carbon sequestration you know by being funded by some of the the, the revenue that is collected from carbon trading so that's pretty exciting yeah carbon trading the, you know the beauty of it is that it, it's global it works you know for price signaling so people can be able to then pursue very interesting and innovative solutions like like you referred to. So it's exciting to see that's being discussed. You know, plans are being made. It sounds like Ghana has made some traction with setting those markets up. And the, the hope is that as I would imagine, as um, more countries are added to the, these platforms or these markets, there are then more interesting things you can do with the scale of that, right? So um, bigger projects can be done and more projects can be done across in different markets. So that, that's exciting to say. So, so with regards to how that then translates to impact, you know, because this, this show is very much focused on the most vulnerable communities, the people who don't really have, are not at COP27, uh, the people don't who have a, a say in a lot of these things. Right. What, what would you say are Ghana's goals when it comes to electrifying the most rural areas, you know, given that it's quite a difficult challenge to provide access to electricity that is both cheap that's reliable as well as also sustainable in terms of um, its carbon attributes. So are there things that Ghana is doing that keeps that, you know, that issue at the front and center of minds? Uh, it'd be great to hear more about that. Absolutely. So I'll, I'll touch on those as well as some of the challenges that we've also faced in achieving that, right? But before then, I was, I'd first like to start by stating that Ghana actually currently boasts an electrification rate of 88.75% which is of course remarkable. Now, this means that we are inching towards the universal access rate, which is widely accepted as 90%. Um, and of course, that means we are hovering above most of our regional counterparts. And we, we do hope that obviously they will also catch up in due course. But um, we are hoping to achieve universal access as early as next year, 2024, um, by God's grace. <laughs> now, extending electricity across large surface areas of land is of course no easy feat in the case of ghana the remaining communities are mainly small island settlements um, in the volta around the volta lake in our case which makes it very difficult for grid extension to reach those areas for a few reasons um, first of all you can imagine how challenging it may be to extend transmission lines and erect pylons over water like the water lake and secondly these small islands are extremely underpopulated, with some of them numbering as few as just a few hundreds, you know, in their populations, which makes it very difficult to justify the economic investment required to extend the grid there by many, like many donor funders will reject such a project on the basis of return on investment alone. Um, as a result, the Ghanaian government is deploying off-grid solutions in these areas to reach the final mile of electrification. Some of my colleagues are actually currently you know, on some of these islands in the Volta Lake as we speak. I've, I've been getting updates from them um, as of yesterday even. Um, and this is why most of the countries with high 
electrification rates on the African continent tend to be smaller countries with some of the lowest populations on the continent as well and the lowest surface areas to cover as well. So when you look at our uh, at the, the statistics for electrification in Africa, you'll see that countries like Mauritius, Seychelles and Gabon, etc., have some of the highest um, rates. So yeah, that's that's how come that happens. And do you do you see because you, you mentioned these again, small islands, they're quite, you know, disparate and far away from economic hubs. Do you see these areas as having enough income to, to support the investment that you, may, you you mentioned to afford the electricity on a long-term basis? Um, I believe that net metering will be very helpful in that process of providing affordable power to rural communities. In simple terms, what does this mean? It's basically ensuring that rural homes are equipped with low-tech, affordable photovoltaics to harness solar power from the sun. Um, on, on each of their, their rooftops so that they can generate their own energy and even possibly sell any excess back to the national grid for additional income towards their household needs. So yeah, I think it's possible. That's great. And again, back to the COP, I believe you've said you've been to two, right? And it has been said that at this COP, there was a lot more aspiration from African countries in terms of what their recommendations for solutions. And, you know, it, it was said that this is maybe different to maybe previous COPs where there was a uh, complacency. How, how would you say this COP that previously passed is maybe the same or different from any other COPs that we've had previously? Hmm. Now, for me, I can only speak really about the ones I've been to mainly, which are, like I said, COP27, which, is, which just happened. And... 26 in Glasgow the year prior, and maybe slightly about uh, COP21 in Paris, um, which is when Ghana kind of committed to the NDCs with many other countries. But what I will say is that, from speaking from where I sit at least, we definitely, I think, again, I'll, be, I'll come back to the issue of loss and damage because countries like ours have typically found these fora to be kind of talk shops because we don't understand why we should be bearing the same grants as countries that have, you know, they've all industrialized, they've done what they need to do, and they've now reached a status where they have the kind of economic prowess that is required to fund the clean energy agenda. We cannot all be on the same, it's not an even playing field, basically. So I think that's why I particularly found COP27 to be rather impactful for creating that um, forum to address the inequity in, in, in a larger sense by the creation of the loss and damage fund. That's very fascinating. And I think, you know, you, you read in various articles that exactly what you just mentioned about how African countries have been a lot more demanding in terms of the responses they would like to see. I'm putting this justice and energy justice at the center of this discussion because it, it has the tendency to become an economic um, point, right? Like the, the fact that this, this transition is going to lead to a lot of investment opportunities in different sectors and different places around the world. And we've already spoken about carbon markets and new technologies, etc. But in the midst of this, there's a very important discussion that has to happen as well. One of equity justice and making sure that things are done in a way where um, responsibility 
is taken by a lot of parties that are are best suited to as well as most um positioned to so i guess in that sense as we speak about energy uh, energy justice and access to energy are there areas of hope you know when you look around the field you're in the work you do as well as also what you've been seeing on a global scale in the different transitions is there a lot of hope for there to you know for for the energy access um campaign to 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 finish or is there still a lot of work to be done i mean i'm particularly hopeful about the prospects of clean cooking agenda um I, if if you watch my content anywhere of you if you engage me in a conversation on energy i won't go five minutes without bringing it up basically um it's highly underestimated um, people think it's quite like lofty or simple sometimes actually but it's probably the fastest way we can decarbonize our household consumption in the developing world, um, especially in Africa. And they will also contribute significantly to better health outcomes for women on the African continent, who unfortunately bear majority of the impacts from inhaling toxic fumes from burning biomass for cooking. So I think the sooner we can are able to address this, which is not actually as expensive as other decarbonization um methods the better that's fantastic and 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 you'll actually see and 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 that's the beauty of energy and climate change it's not just about oh are you doing renewables are you doing solar are you doing wind it's about the implications that occur when you don't have these things and the, the the ramifications of not having access to energy has so many implications beyond just health benefits there's the economic benefit there's also the um social benefit of people not being able to maximize the human um potential right so i think it, it's a it's a energy issue as much as it is a developmental issue and it's great that um things are happening across the world that can help solve this problem so as we part now i think we're coming up on time is there is there anything else you feel an international audience should know more about clean cooking or energy access or equi- energy justice or any of the things that we've spoken about I mean, to be honest, we've covered a lot of ground, but um, what I could say is actually, this is not even a separate topic or anything, but I got, I'll just share this tip with you for your viewers as an exclusive <laughs> um, for listening to the Bridging the Energy Gap. But um, so Ghana is actually, I spoke a bit about our energy transition framework, right? Um, and I'm very, very happy to announce that we'll be working with United Nations Sustainable Energy for All to develop this framework into a fully-fledged investor-friendly document so that we can actually get some funding towards our energy transition agenda. So that's something that maybe some of your viewers would have not heard anywhere else. So I'm glad to share that on here. Well, Bradley, we we very much invite um, opening announcements here. So thank you so much for that. It's really exciting. Um, I think the community that listens, uh, I hope, will take reference to this and, and use it as a platform to then do their work on understanding how to be impactful in that space. So I think without further ado, thank you so much, Bradley, for your time. It's been very, very um, interesting, exciting, and we've, we've touched on a lot of different different topics. Um, I hope that with time, all the important work that you're doing in many different spaces comes to facilitate a lot of impact. And I, I, we've seen that you've already planted the seeds. We've spoken about 
how the carbon markets and how net metering and a bunch of other interesting, exciting things, especially with clean cooking, um, will hopefully bridge the gap of development and also energy. So, so thank you, Bradley. Thank you so much as well, Peckham, for having me on here. I'm um, looking forward to the next session. <laughs>